The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, we're headed to a great city today, a place known for its food and music and Mardi Gras atmosphere and its heat and its unusual political and legal systems. I'm talking about New Orleans, of course, or better pronounced, New Orleans or Nolens. Where you at? Beignets and red beans and rice and jambalaya and gumbo. Po' boys. Crawfish and oysters. Wash it down with some hurricanes and chicory coffee. This is good stuff, people. And at every corner, you hear the music. It's the birthplace of jazz, the home of Louis Armstrong and the Marcelluses and Harry Connick Jr. and King Oliver and Lil Wayne also a state of mind, a place that's out of the ordinary, not the biggest city, not the wealthiest or the most politically important, but maybe the most idiosyncratic city in the United States. There's no place like it, not even close. Merge Las Vegas with Paris and Rio de Janeiro, or or should it be you combine Boston with Montreal and Atlanta, or maybe it's condensing Chicago plus, I don't know, Cannes plus Buenos Aires. None of this works, people. New Orleans frees itself from your comparisons. It could almost be its own nation sitting in the United States like the Vatican City within Rome, part of it and essential to it, but also standing apart, independent, Proudly unique, defiant. And so it's a place for writers. Writers looking to escape and writers looking for home. We will be talking with an expert on literary New Orleans, T.R. Johnson, today on the history of literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Let's get right to it. T.R. Johnson on a great trip through the city of New Orleans. And I know, I know you're looking forward to taking your trip, but your summer is already booked. Well, good news, people. New Orleans is great in the winter. So check out those flights, book those hotels, and plan to spend some time in the Big Easy. What a great nickname. And when you go, check out TR's book to give you a dose of the writers who've passed through the Walt Whitmans and Anne Rice's and William Faulkner's and Tennessee Williams's. I don't know why I'm saying this in the plural. And Kate Chopin's, John Kennedy Tools of the World, Ernest Hemingway, Mark Twain, an awful lot of writers have found New Orleans to be awfully important to them. But who and why? We'll have that next with T.R. Johnson. And then because we're in a generous mood today, 
Let's throw in some bonus content. Let's hear from our movie experts, Len Webb and Vincent Williams, the hosts of the podcast, The Misha Mission, about their choices for the last books they will ever read. But first, T.R. Johnson, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is T.R. Johnson, a professor of English at Tulane University and the editor of New Orleans, A Literary History. For many years, he's lived in New Orleans and hosted a contemporary jazz radio program. He's here today to discuss his book, New Orleans, A Writer's City. T.R. Johnson, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with your history with this great city where were you living in the 1990s, and what made you decide to move to New Orleans? Well, I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, which is actually where I had grown up kind of, you know, in the 70s. I was born in Chicago, but my 70s boyhood was in Louisville. I'd been back in Chicago in the 80s for college. But Louisville in the 90s was really an important time for me. There was a lot of music around, and I was going to graduate school. And, you know, Louisville is kind of a, a old river town with uh, a you know, significant sort of history of immigrants, especially Catholic immigrants. And as a that kind of place, it was sort of a perfect warm up for coming to mm. New Orleans, which mm-hmm. is also a, a very you know, an immigrant city, a Catholic city, a river town. And it was sort of, uh, as I say, the, the perfect warm up for coming to this place where every, it was all those things only on a much grander scale and for a much longer period of time and, and more intense. So that was kind of my preparation for coming here. The simple answer really is that I had a job. I just finished my PhD and was sort of looking for work and had a short term thing in Boston and was really looking for a place to kind of settle. I was in my early 30s and feeling the need to, you know, start to put down roots. And an opportunity began to happen, developed for me here in New Orleans. And I was so excited to do it because I'm a music nut. You know, Mm. you mentioned that I'm a jazz disc jockey. I've been a music nut since I was in my early teens, I guess. And I didn't know much about New Orleans, except that I knew there'd be a lot of interesting music around, I figured. And 
that was all I needed to know. I figured, you know, there'd be very short winters with a big street party in the middle of it called Mardi Gras. I knew that much and looked forward to it and, and that there would be a lot of music here. And so when that opportunity opened up for me here, I really pounced. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Got here in 99 uh, and been here ever since. Right. You know, when you're searching for jobs and going through that, especially as a professor of English, you really don't know where you're going to wind up. It's not like you get to pick and choose. A lot of times you you have Mm -hmm. to take the opportunities as they arise. You must have felt like you really hit the jackpot when (laughs) New Orleans was your landing place. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, it's one of the miracles that it defines my life. It was the... You know, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory moment. I opened the, the <laughs> bar with the golden ticket inside, you right. know, uh, and forever grateful. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's been an incredible experience here. And, uh, I hope to hang on here as long as I can, you know. Right. Okay. So you're, you're a bookish guy and you still had some time in Louisville. And I understand you started to prepare yourself by starting to explore New Orleans in books. So that's right. That's what right. were you yeah. what were you reading and how did they prepare you for what was to come? You know, it's so funny. I was uh, this would have been I mean, think this would have been winter of 99 when I realized I would be moving here. And I bought a little guidebook that turns out to be this sort of gorgeously written thing. I think it's called New Orleans, the ultimate guide. And there's a lot of these kinds of things around. But this one is particularly beautifully written. And it just kind of conjures the neighborhoods. In their sort of uh, general look, I was trying to figure out where to look for an apartment kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and that kind of, I, but but the book ended up being so much more than that. And it just became kind of spellbinding. And I was just so excited to immerse here. I had not yet really begun to sort of dip my toe into the literature. As an undergraduate, I had read Robert Stone's A Hall of Mirrors and fell in love with it. It's an extraordinary book about New Orleans in the kind of early to mid-60s and sort of the civil rights era and the moment of the Kennedy assassination. Those are kind of the backdrops for the book. And it's kind of a portrait of a very kind of noirish, hard-boiled New Orleans with a, a sort of centered in the bohemian underground of the French Quarter, but with a, a powerful, powerful ability to kind of evoke the atmosphere, especially the sort of nightlife of the city in a way that's not celebratory, but is kind of menacing and paranoid. And it just struck such a chord with me. I'd read that kind of oh, mid 80s, I guess, as an undergraduate and was just smitten with it. And I visited New Orleans once or twice after that. And it really confirmed my sense of this is a really complicated place, a mm-hmm. really rich place. And it's not, you know, while a certain tourist vision of the city is that it's kind of a Disneyland for grownups, but it's so much more than that. And it's such an adventure to be here. And so that was really the primary warm up for me, if you will, uh, that guidebook. And then having read about 10 years prior, Robert Stone's Hall of Mirrors. And that was what I kind of had in my head as I arrived here in 99. Right. And I guess, you know, what surprised me or what, what was here that I was not anticipating and really just how much music there was. And then soon, I began to realize, too, just how much culture of all kinds, from street parade culture to the bookish literary culture, and so many variations of both of those reaching through every spectrum of the city. And that was, I knew it would be culturally rich, you know, I had that general vague sense, but nothing could prepare me for the scale of what's here. I mean, it's a cliche to call it a cultural treasure and kind of a a global crossroads, a hub of culture, but nothing prepared me for just how true that was. Incredible stuff happening every night 
in art galleries, in music clubs, readings, film festivals. It's a cultural treasure like very few places I've ever been in my life. Right. So where does literature and maybe lore and stories and stories about writers, how does that fit in to the whole picture? Because one of the things I'm curious about is whether that's kind of reserved for a, a handful of passionate city historians and tourists mm -hmm. who are looking to walk in the steps of William Faulkner or whatever they're doing. But I'm wondering, do you feel like it also pervades the daily lives of the residents or are they too busy with the music and the food and the getting ready for the parades and stuff to be reading about their city? Yeah, yeah, I think that it does. And, I, and the reason I would say that is because you know, people that maybe not realize how small New Orleans really is. It's mm. a city of less than 500,000 people. You know, unlike Paris or New York or even San Francisco, these other really intense sort of literary cultures and cultural hubs, this place is a tiny fraction of the size of those places, meaning it's very manageable, you know, to kind of navigate and you end up talking to people all the time. And 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 New Orleanians love to talk about New Orleans because yeah, it's, right. it's a very it's a very it's a challenging city in all kinds of ways. But a city of of you know charm is too mild a word uh, in counterpoint to the challenges. It's a city of kind of miracles and saints, as we point out, as we often say, uh, amidst all the challenges. And so we're always just as you know, buddy of mine said, you know, standing on the front stoop, yakking with the neighbors about this, that, or the other, and sharing stories and lore, gossip, legends, what have you. At, at every dimension. And it's, so it's an incredibly, it's a very small and dense and highly sociable environment mm. that loves to think about itself. And so my sense is that while, yes, there's a handful of people who make it their life's work to sort of study this place in various ways and various registers through various topics, but everybody is kind of wrapped up in the adventure together of sorting out what this is and and why we love it and why we stick with it despite the challenges and so on. So my sense is that, yes, there is a kind of um, a tiny circle of people who are devote their lives to it, but everybody always has an ear cocked to the latest twist and turn in their understanding of, of where we are down here. Mm -hmm. I sort of discovered that for myself. My college roommate was from New Orleans and I went to visit down there and his father was so proud of things that had come from New Orleans and he would listen to the music of Harry Connick Jr. And his favorite baseball player back then was Will Clark. And he would watch uh, A Streetcar Named Desire. And, you know, he'd point out to us where Anne Rice had walked and, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, uh, it really was, some places I think people can't wait to leave. And other sure. places people feel like, well, this is home. I'm I'm from here. I'm proud of the people who are from here. I feel a connection mm -hmm. if somebody has passed through here. And I guess that extended to literature as well. I think so. Absolutely. I mean, I think, as you say, there's there's plenty of places where people are kind of eager to figure out a way to get out of there. This is a place where I think a lot of people can't, can't bear to leave. You know, yeah. that's kind of what made, what made Katrina so painful for so many is that, mm. uh, you know, a massive population was displaced in and who had never dreamt of ever considering living anywhere else and right. and suddenly they were forced to be gone for a year or two or or maybe forever and the pain of that was very intense to say the very least and it's a place that is just the atmosphere is just thick with 
stories and meanings and ironies and tensions and complexities that are, it sort of gets in your blood and you just become uh, consumed with it. I sometimes think if I ever, you know, bad weather, whatever it is that might bounce me out of here, God, it would be an adjustment to yeah. try to breathe, <laughs> breathe the air anywhere else. It would be a serious challenge. Right. Once, once you get to this, any place else feels like, ah, what am I, do? you know, fish out of water to say the least. Yeah. So let's get some names and some books on the table. You've taught yeah. courses on the literature of New Orleans. I'm curious what kinds of works are on the syllabus when you teach that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's the big challenge of teaching that class, you know, a semester is 15 weeks long. And mm -hmm. to try to get a meaningful sort of cross-section, a meaningful slice of this literary culture and all its glories in 15 weeks, and it is always the challenge. It's like working a jigsaw puzzle. I'm like, I've got to squeeze this in, which means something that, something has to get pulled out. And so I'm forever tinkering and making these difficult decisions, how to make room for the latest thing I've fallen in love with without getting rid of something I can't imagine the class without kind of thing. So the principal tension really is I want to teach, I got to teach these canonical stuff that sort of anchor the world's understanding of the literature of the city. And that's Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, and Kate Chopin's The Awakening, Walker Percy's The Movie Goer. Mm -hmm. Those would be sort of the big three. Confederacy of Dunces, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, and Anne Rice for kind of mass culture. I don't teach that stuff so much, but those big three are kind of anchors that are kind of unnegotiable. And then I, I want to also sort of dip into sort of some historical ref references to get people a sense of how the stuff developed. And that means Lafcadio Hearn and George Cable. And then, of course, I wanted to do a Katrina section. And that became very important, teaching Dan Baum's Nine Lives and Sherry Fink's work on the trouble at the hospital where the euthanasia cases during the storm there. And so that stuff that I also wanted to get in was musicians' memoirs, because mm. they end up being some of the great storytellers of the city, and they invoke the city and its long-range cultural significance in a really important way. And I'm thinking of Sidney Bechet's memoir called Treated Gentle, one of the most gorgeous and even mystical reveries on the origins of jazz I've ever run across and of music in general and how it works. And Louis Armstrong's yeah. Satchmo, My New Orleans is an astounding book. And yep. Michael Andaji wrote a great thing about Storyville in the 1970s that's really interesting. And, and so I, I use that stuff as a way to kind of conjure the music. Jelly Roll Morton has an extraordinary memoir where he talks about the role of voodoo in his fortunes through life. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous book. And so that's a way to get a different kind of voice outside what we think of as sort of traditional mainline canonical literature and to conjure the city, to imagine the city from the vantage point of the people who really became the architects of the 20th century sound in the United States and their take on things and its roots, its deep roots in the experience of enslavement and human trafficking here and the dynamics between that and Storyville, bodies with price tags being the essential commonality, are really, really crucial ways to getting into the city in depth. The slave market and then the red light district and the dynamic between them and the way that the red light district becomes kind of a launch pad for jazz, which then in turn becomes clearly New Orleans's greatest gift to the world. It's often hailed as, you know, America's greatest gift to the world, rightly. But let's not forget where it started, which is basically Third Ward and Sixth Ward right here in New Orleans. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with some questions about your book, New Orleans, A Writer City. ¶¶ 
Okay, we are back. So, T.R. Johnson, this is not your first book about New Orleans. What was the first right. one about, and how does the new book differ? Yeah, you know, it was, um, I've been teaching that course for, gosh, probably a little over a decade when Cambridge University Press approached me and said, we really want to do a collection of essays about the literary history of the city. So mm. I said, sure, I'd be, I would. I put in a proposal, they accepted it. That book is about 26, I think it is, academic essays by a whole different range of academics about the literary history of the city. And specifically, I framed that book as, I wanted to do sort of a history of the key moments in the world's understanding of this city mm. as a singular place in human imagination. And that comes in large part from the writers. And so I figured there's a, a little over two dozen kind of uh, literary s scenes that uh, incubated the world's understanding of this place. And that's what that book became. So it's a comprehensive series of academic essays, largely for academics, not exclusively, but pitched it's by and mostly for academics and seeks to do a very comprehensive history over, as I say, 26 essays that start in the, in the 1700s and wind their way up into the Katrina era and covering pretty much everything between those two nodes. Hmm. That first book then I put on a symposium where I had a lot of the contributors, almost all of them come and do panel discussions of the kind of dynamics between their particular areas of interest and expertise. And a lot of people came. There was just a lot of energy in there. And this is actually right before the pandemic, about six weeks before the lockdown. Huge sort of excitement and energy as people began to make various connections and, and draw out, you know, potential debates and surprising connections. And it was a lot of fun. On the strength of that, Cambridge came back to me and said, if we want to do another book, this time, let it be all you and designed for the general reader, just you riffing on your take on the cultural history of the city with the particular topic of literature being its central focus. So mm -hmm. that's what I did. And so it's a very different kind of book. It does not seek to be a comprehensive history, but rather to get at kind of the contemporary meaning of New Orleans as it is wound through oh, I would say the years since the Civil War, but with the real bulk of it landing in closer and closer to kind of contemporary life. So there's really nothing on the 1700s, but I, I do talk about the 19th century a bit and then get deep into kind of the dawn of the 20th century, really significant sort of the Afro-Creole scene in the late 19th century in the French Quarter, and then the Bohemia, the kind of post-Creole Bohemia that replaced it in the French Quarter around the 1920s. And then from there, it's profound vogue as a kind of literary bohemia in the 40s, in the 60s, and then on into the 80s and, and into, the, into the present time. As I began to get into that, too, I began to think the way to set this up, I want to do the different parts of town, make it more a geography than a history. And mm -hmm. so I picked five, what I think of as the five major thoroughfares of the city that anchor sort of the five major sections of town. And then I traced the really significant literature 
that has sprung up either on or about those five corridors. Then right. there's a sixth chapter that's on the outskirts of the city, which happens to be where the most important stuff is happening today. Right. So that's how I did it. It's a geography rather than a history. It's for the general reader as opposed to academics. And it's all me telling stories as opposed to uh, you know, a range of rigorous academic histories about these different sort of plateaus in the city's global meaning. Right. So I want to get to the five streets and the sixth area, sort of walk through those one by one. But before we get there, I have a couple of questions first. One of the things I should say, I really enjoy the way you organize the book because it does remind me of walking through the city and how Mm -hmm. when you're standing in a place, our, our brains are so trained to function chronologically. And when we read history, you know, we think, okay, first we need to march through this decade, which will be followed by the next decade, which will be followed by Mm -hmm. the next era and so on. But when you're in a city, Mm -hmm. it's not like that. When you're in a city, you turn the corner and there might be a building that's from the 1920s, but you might also be noticing a house where a contemporary writer is living Mm -hmm. or everything is collapsed. History is kind of collapsed and it all comes at you at once. And New Orleans, Mm -hmm. so much of the experience is everything coming at you all at once that I really uh, appreciated that it wasn't trying to organize it in a chronological way, but was giving me a taste of that, well, here's where you are, and here's Mm -hmm. what you would notice if you were standing here Mm -hmm. with me today. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to ask you, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you mentioned the world's imagination of New Orleans, and I think a lot of people probably have some idea of that, but I'm wondering, as someone who's thought about it more than most of us, if you Mm -hmm. have kind of a a paragraph summary of what that means for people around the world. What does New Orleans stand for in mm-hmm. the the imagination of the rest of us? Boy, that's a great question. You know, in a sense, I, I'm kind of, because I'm so immersed in it and so close to it, I, it's hard for me to summarize it as one thing, but let me take a shot at it. I mean, it seems to me, you know, gosh, it's a, it's an incredibly complicated, very cosmopolitan place mm. in a part of America that is not generally thought of as cosmopolitan, the yeah. deep south, the plantation right. south. The last thing you would say about Mississippi and Alabama and, and northern Louisiana is cosmopolitan. And New Orleans is as cosmopolitan, I dare say, as San Francisco, New York. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's such a outlier vis-a-vis its surroundings that I think that's part of what the world kind of imagines here is that this is in the deep south, but it's something. And, and while it's of that world in certain ways, it is such a radically different thing mm-hmm. from that world. And so I think people, I'm assuming what people think of when they think of New Orleans is the iron lace balconies of the French Quarter, the iconic iron lace that means a lot of things and just most immediately kind of symbolizes the kind of intricate complexity, this kind of filigree, but it's also iron. It's yeah. hard, it's durable, and it's it's a tough town. It's a you know sort of a glamorous and intricate and kind of lacy place with this kind of filigree, but it's a hard place. There's a line in Absalom Absalom where Faulkner says... <laughs> I was you know, just going to say this, yeah. He says, uh, he's talking about the iron laces, it's at once feminine and steel hard. Yeah. And I think that describes it perfectly. It's like, this is a tough town. This is a high stakes town. This is a place where you got to be looking over your shoulder. Uh, at the same time, it is this exquisite refinement. And, and that's kind of, you know, like the French Quarter in general, you know, this kind of internationally 
infamous sort of party zone for drunken debauchery and so on. It symbolizes, as a friend put it, the French Quarter today is a theme park, the theme being alcoholism. <laughs> but uh, And the flip side being it's where like uh, Audubon lived and in this very, very high cultural legacy, they're just rubbing shoulders constantly in the French Quarter and really around the city where the legacies of enslavement and the hardships from that are coming and developing with climate change and a certain kind of lawlessness is also intertwined with a legacy of cultural sophistication that can match anything in the world as far as I'm concerned. You know, jazz music and, and all the tributaries into and out of that form are a treasure and exude a certain kind of complexity and sophistication that has no match anywhere, Yeah, I think. And and yeah. so I think that's I think how the world thinks the iron lace of the French Quarter as a kind of emblem of uh, a kind of toughness and a kind of almost uh, feminine intricacy and complexity and refinement. Mm. Yeah. And I love the way that you took the feature of iron lace and you were able to weave a whole set of stories around mm-hmm. it throughout history. So tell us a little more about that. You start. I think, in the 1850s with it. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, maybe a hair earlier, but right in there, you know, kind of coming into the middle part of the, of the 1800s. And it's a fascinating thing that iconic iron lace blends so many of the kind of fundamental forces that constitute early New Orleans, that the, the raw material was sort of schlepped down here on rafts and boats on the rivers by what we call cane tucks, you know, what we, you know, Kentucky in modern parlance, but everybody from west of the Appalachians along the Ohio River would be called cane tucks, whether from Indiana, Ohio, even Tennessee, Andrew Jackson being the kind of iconic cane tuck of the mall down here. And they brought the raw material down here in their rafts to sell because people with money who wanted to make kind of an ostentatious display of their of their wealth, wanted to get these iron lace balconies put in. The Cantucks brought that raw material down here. And then it was a very particular kind of enslaved person from Africa who crafted it. The iron workers of Africa were a kind of priest caste. They Mm. were considered to be a kind of divine power to manipulate this otherwise uh, impossible substance and to craft this gorgeous beauty out of it. And the craftsmanship of iron lace and of, of ironwork in general in Africa goes back centuries. And there are early folk tales collected along the west coast of Africa that I think they were collected, I want to say, in the 1500s, and they were known to be centuries old then, about you know legends about the great ironworkers who were, as I say, kind of had a certain kind of divine status, certainly a, a kind of priestly status. And so you get these a kind of uh, typical New Orleans paradox, these very elite slaves, these very, um, they were often among the most expensive enslaved people to purchase were these artists who start working with the material that the cane tucks had schlepped down here on the river to create this stuff and, and all sponsored by the Creole elites of the French Quarter. So you've got the cane tucks, the sort of Daniel Boone, Andrew Jackson figures. You've got these brilliant African descended artists operating out of a long cultural tradition, all sponsored by these Creole elites. So it's an incredibly, to put it in sort of contemporary terms, an incredibly multicultural project, a multicultural collaboration. Hmm. What the sort of zinger that really gets me is I I think about, there's a very famous folktale about African iron workers, and this came from um, what is now the nation of Angola. 
about a guy who hired some crows to make some iron farm implements, some hoes, I guess they were. And he, the crows did this and he, they all looked alike to him, so he couldn't figure out which one to pay. So he hired a dove to judge which is the one I'm supposed to pay. And the judge began to coo, and that became you know, his, the, the decision, and that's sort of how the story ends. But what sort of tickles me about that is the sound of the dove cooing resolved this case. And I can't help but think of the famous melody by Prince, When Doves Cry. Mm. All, four, all four of Prince's grandparents were from Louisiana. Yeah. And, and that kind of metal clinking melody of, of When Doves Cry, it, sound, it makes me think of the iron workers here in New Orleans. As I say, all four of, of his grandparents were from this area. And so yeah. it all it kind of, you know, it's like cane tucks and ancient Africa and elite Creoles and then Prince, yeah. you know, it's like <laughs> all of that is invoked in that iron lace. And that's yeah. the kind of like stunning, you know, interconnectedness and, and, and depth of kind of meanings intersecting here in the city that is, is kind of what I think kind of undergirds the the kind of magical experiences people have here. And they're visually very distinctive and give New Orleans a, a very particular look, but the, but it's it it's combined with their functionality that they're yeah. they provide these outdoor sitting rooms and you can sit in the shade, avoid the sun, you can avoid the rain, you are above the noise and the clamor of the crowds, especially during mm-hmm parades and and mm-hmm. the other festivities that often go on in New Orleans and so it you can kind of imagine people who are living in and using these ba- I mean you know I was down in the street and I was shoulder to shoulder with the crowd and I was kind of jealous of the people who were in some of these galleries and it looked like they were uh, almost in a kind of gilded cage except they were leaning out over and and having as much fun as the people down below probably having even more fun because they didn't have to deal with all of the problems of the crowd of course and that may be part of their purpose is to sort of you know visually you know that there's a kind of elite separate upper very literal upper class there mm-hmm. that is uh, up above the fray and that's part of their purpose is, you know, they are viewing platforms for all the drama and melee down below, but they are also stages themselves that those down below right. gaze up right. at and yep. have the complicated experiences, you know, the kind of envy and jealousy, maybe resentment, you know, whatever uh, one would uh, be feeling looking up at those folks who, who are not getting jostled or, you know, <laughs> you know, the kinds of things that you deal with down on the street. Uh, let's just leave it that way. Right. You know, uh, right. Uh, so it's a, it's a, and they're incredibly beautiful. There's no question about it. You know, the gas lanterns and, you know, the way they kind of shine on a, on a rainy night, on mm. a quiet rainy night or it, during the pageantry of Carnival. It's, they are, as you say, outdoor sitting rooms, viewing platforms, but are themselves kind of gilded cage with all the complicated implications of that. And sort of stages where you can see Stanley and Stella's. Right. So that's a good transition as we talk about the writers. So let's go through these five streets and you can tell us how they demonstrate the different layers we have of New Orleans and its writers. One of the strangest discoveries I made as I worked on this is the way the literature of these five different corridors kind of coheres thematically. The first chapter is all about Royal Street, the Royal Mm -hmm. Street corridor, which is my way of talking about the French Quarter. And so much of the literature of that corridor hinges on notions of mask or masquerade Mm. more broadly self-invention or double identity the idea that the self is something that can be kind of manufactured and staged and 
And this is an important theme, I think, in 19th century cities in general, that new large crowds, a lot of people to kind of be who they want to be. And, you know, Poe dabbled in this stuff and so on. But it becomes a kind of just absolute linchpin of the overwhelming majority of the literature of the French Quarter from Black Like Me in the early 60s, mm-hmm. um, you know, back through the ironic stuff that O. Henry wrote. Faulkner stuff, Valerie Martin's recent masterpiece called Property, all of them are working with this kind of ironic double identity. Robert Stone's Hall of Mirrors, these people who are kind of, no one is quite who they seem to be. And everybody is is self-fashioning in ways that are pretty radical. And the metaphor for that being masquerade. The next chapter is St. Claude Avenue, which goes down through the 8th and 9th wards, down to the Industrial Canal into the Lower Ninth. And this is a much more hard scrabble corridor, traditionally working class, sort of waterfront working class mm-hmm. area towards the Desire neighborhood is and the St. Rock neighborhood. And, and it's much more hard scrabble. And so, interestingly enough, the literature through this part of the city often sort of hinges on this notion of hard times, the kind of hardship and struggle and um uh, the possibility of, or if not the reality of desperation, and also the way people in those kinds of circumstances invest a lot in their children, the dream that the that the the innocent youngsters will um, have better lives than they were born into and and in their innocence, this kind of redemptive power of the very young to kind of steer us all into uh, a better place and and so the literature of this corridor. Uh, all kind of uh, orbits around those kinds of themes. And I, I, you know, I end each chapter with sort of a coda where I look in a kind of a very focused way on a crucial text of, of that, of that area for this part of town, I use streetcar named desire and, and really kind of hang my reading on the baby at the end of the play, that child is going to become the, the way that family sort of stays together for good or ill. And, and the fiction of, decency and a kind of civilized forward moving life is all anchored in that baby. And mm. and that's kind of a very intense microcosm of how a lot of the literature of this part of the city works, whether it be Walk on the Wild Side or A Recent Martyr, lots of this stuff. The legend of, of Ruby Bridges desegregating the school while the screaming mob is around her and having the courage to walk up those steps into that school and the famous Norman Rockwell painting mm. kind of grows mm-hmm. from that. And I think it's, you know, when Steinbeck wrote about that moment in his final chapter of his final book that led to the Nobel Prize, I can't help but think that John Waters was inspired by that when he made Pink Flamingos. He was living in the neighborhood in the late 60s as he was getting ready to do Pink Flamingos and and that kind of screaming, witchy mob that is uh, so scary in their desperation. And yet the child able to sort of walk up those steps into the school and uh, with each step taking America into what would become its future mm. to the degree that it has moved beyond that world. Yeah. And then we go to Esplanade. Right. And that basically covers the, you know, that's the oldest thoroughfare in the city. It links the river to Bayou St. John. And this was a crucial portage for the earliest European settlement here. And 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 what's interesting about that uh, street is the way the literature of that corridor hinges on notions of flight, the idea of kind of running away and escape. Mm. And that obviously is the center of Kate Chopin's The Awakening. Oh, it's yeah. crucial to Bob Kaufman's very surrealist, almost escapist, whimsical poetry that made him so celebrated 
particularly in the 60s and 70s as as a and 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 really in the 50s too as a as a key figure of the beatnik movement and and the sort of the surrealism of the bay area in the 60s and and so and just on and on 12 years a slave crucially has a crucial scene along the esplanade corridor when he is sold through the slave pens there at the corner of uh, Esplanade and Charters. And, and of course, what's on his mind every step of the way is how can I get the hell out of here? How can I survive this and escape back to where I was kidnapped from up on the East Coast? And and so those themes of escape run all through it. The next chapter is Basin Street, which I call Music and Memory. That's Storyville and Congo Square and Treme and the ways various practices of memory are sort of braided into the legendary musical history of that part of town and the major literature that sort of orbits around that part of town being also consumed with song and song as memory. When I was working on that stuff, I found a a Toni Morrison manuscript that's never come out of the archive. It was damaged in a big fire at her house in the early 90s, Mm. but still readable. And it's a she wrote a Broadway musical right before she's got to work on Beloved. She was consumed with the things she was calling Storyville, the New Orleans musical. And it's a musical about the red light district and full of notions of black memory and the role of music in kind of distilling and laying claim to memories of an unspeakable past, really, through enslavement and the Middle Passage and so on. And so that was a, I was really thrilled to make that discovery and start off that chapter. With it. But that whole chapter around Basin Street, Basin Street is the core of the chapter, but that's Treme, Congo Square and Storyville, all of that literature kind of hinging from those themes of music and memory. So the next chapter is uh, St. Charles, which is about blood and money, uh, vampires mm. and violence <laughs> and the violence embedded in kind of, uh, how should we say, renegade capitalism that goes back to the pirate days, but still very much in play in the ruthlessness with which big money pursues its interest in that very American part of the city. And then the final chapter is called Outskirts, and it's where I look at kind of the swampy margins of the city where climate change has had the most immediate and, and will continue to have the most immediate and most devastating impact. Mm. And uh, and the way a lot of New Orleans from the traditional centers of black culture in the city have been forced by gentrification out to those outskirts. So, you know, Treme, which was overwhelmingly black when I moved here 25 years ago, is today 50 percent white because of gentrification. Where has all that black population gone? They're in the outskirts. And in those outskirts, you're much closer to the water and much at a a remove from flood protection. And those places were decimated in Katrina. And as more trouble comes in the future, they will feel it the first and they'll feel it the worst. And not surprisingly, the literary activity out there is the most significant stuff happening in the city right now. The poetry of Charisma Price, the fiction of Maurice Carlos Ruffin, these are really, really crucial figures. Clint Smith's work is of huge significance. All of these, they're from the outskirts that were largely built, oh, post-World War II and really as recently as the 70s and 80s. And the sort of drainage technologies that made it possible to make human dwellings in that environment were... It's a great thing that the city could expand and develop in those directions. However, what we're finding is that water water is bigger than our gadgetry, mm-hmm. and water will do what it's going to do no matter what gadgetry we insert. And so places that were drained and then built on in the 20th century, we're now discovering 
uh, going to be, it's a floodplain, it's a marsh, it's a swamp, and that's what it's going to be. And those houses, Mother Nature does not care that there are houses and streets out there now. The old city, they kind of knew where the flood water was. They didn't build on it. We had the hubris to build on that stuff, thinking we could drain it and control the water, and we're finding that water is, is bigger than we are. So uh, so the literature that's that's coming from out there is preoccupied with the gentrification that drove Black New Orleans in those directions, and also the fate you know, the hurricane anxiety that just permeates life that's exposed out there the way that it is. We talked about New Orleans as being a place that people don't want to leave because I think they feel so connected to it and probably they feel philosophically that, you know, or or just psychologically, they're not going to find something that can replace it easily. And once you have that in your blood or if you feel like Mm -hmm. it's your adopted home because of the way it resonates with you, it's hard to give it up. It, It takes some adjustment if that's taken away from you. Is that basically what is behind placelessness? It's I'm sort of reminded of this writer I heard talking where he had written a book about divorce. He was giving a book reading and and one of the people in the audience said, I know you're happily married. How can you write so well about divorce? And he said, well, it's because I'm happily married. You know, it's because I can imagine what it would be like to not have this. And and that's what gives me the insight into it. I just imagine what it would be like if all this was gone. And, and I'm wondering, do you feel like placelessness is because of this, that it's because there is such mm-hmm. a sense of home and pride and and a, a feeling of connection to New Orleans that placelessness mm-hmm. can can arise? Or do you feel like placelessness is endemic to New Orleans, even in the best of times and even when people are there? Do they feel like they're living outside of the real world or that they're in kind of a dream or, you know, is it? Yeah. <laughs> am Beautiful I, question. Am I, yeah. Am I pushing this this too far? No, no. I think you're onto something very profound. You know, that last thing you said, like, am I living in a dream here? And I think, you know, the very famous old jazz standard, Basin Street Blues, it talks about New Orleans as the land of dreamy dreams. There's, there's a famous short story collection about uptown New Orleans called The Land of Dreamy Dreams. It is the land of dreamy dreams. We have to kind of, is this place real? You have to sometimes ask yourself. There's so much art and so much culture and so much adventure here and so much lore and legend and 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 shenanigans of various kinds that it just isn't quite real the way mm. most places are i mean we, a lot of people work. it's you know it's a myth that it's just a party town people work themselves to death here you know routinely it's a hard working hustle 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 kind of place but it's still imbued every step of the way with this kind of magical surreal you know, carnivalesque masquerade and and trickery every around every turn. And so, yeah, it kind of feels like it's a little bit unreal. But I think flip side is, and you're you're absolutely right about this part too, is that there you can't. The air is thick with sort of meaning and significance and history here. One of my nieces said uh, she was visiting. She says I love New Orleans because it's so mysterious. Mm. It's so charged with the sense that there's stuff going on that is beyond what I as a kid can, can comprehend. And, and um, I think that's true. And so the, the horror of being sort of forced out of here in, in, you know, a a climate refugee, let's say, you know, in the, in the decades to come is that getting cut off from that overwhelming sense of connection to history and, and to the world in its purest, most intense form as a, as a hemispheric crossroads, combines Europe, Africa, the cane tucks, um, the Latin world. It is a it is a global hub. And 
and and a and thus a a distillation of cultural meaning and experience that is so profound that to lose that and be just kind of anywhere it feels um feels so tragic this is you know walker percy's moviegoer is is a is in part a meditation on precisely this issue he's trying to sort of experiment in what it would mean to live in a a world that isn't sort of loaded with significance uh and that's kind of almost handed to you on a silver platter and um or earned through through a deep personal history and 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 so this is exactly what i think people are kind of it's on everybody's mind here. It's like, what would it be like to actually not be in a place like this? And how would we manage that? Or are we just fools for presuming to try to hang on in such a hmm. crazy pipe dream of a cultural treasure? You know, in the rest of the world, the rest of America, February is February. It is not called <laughs> carnival season. <laughs> it is, this is the uh, tension that charges this place with what it is, that it's so precious on one hand and so intense on the other hand and so poised for it to, to be sort of tragically yanked away. And, and the city is obviously no stranger to hardship and tragedy uh, and uh, living hand to mouth and kind of being uprooted, being sort of trafficked through here in one form or another is baked into the experience. And, you know, the old saying about how that, you know, there's no atheist in foxholes. Mm. Um, and that's kind of true of New Orleans. It's so intense and so high stakes that you can't help but develop a certain kind of magical thinking and mm. a certain kind of superstitious, you know, got to stay lucky kind of thing. You know, it's a, it's a land of tragedies and miracles. You know, a friend of mine put it, both God and the devil have full-time jobs. They're working around the clock in this city. And um, I grew up in Louisville, and much as I I have a very fond attachment to that place and, and love it very much, but I wouldn't say that about that. You know, God and the devil are not working around the clock in Louisville, as far as I can tell. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Maybe they are, and I just can't see it. But, but here, you can't help but see it, you know? Right. Well, with that kind of mystery and those kinds of kind of depth and, and those layers and everything to unpack and, and sift through, I can think of no better group of people to do it than the writers that you've chosen. And I can think of no better way to commemorate those writers than your book, New Orleans, A Writer's City. Uh, T.R. Johnson, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And finally, Len Webb and Vincent Williams, who host the Mishaw Mission, which plans to revisit every black American film ever made. After our conversation about the class of 1989, a new podcast that looks at six films from an incredibly pivotal year in black cinema, I asked Len and Vincent a special bonus question. Okay, I'm joined now by Len Webb and Vincent Williams, experts in black films and hosts of the podcasts, The Mishaw Mission and The Class of 1989. Len and Vincent, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Okay. Um, that, that's easy for me. I'm I'm always gonna um go to James Baldwin's mm. Another Country. Uh-huh. Yep. Which is, is is a book I try to revisit once every year, every couple of years. It's just big, it's expansive, and and it's about human connection and, and it's about, you know, travel, basically. It's it's about going out to the undiscovered country sometimes. Mm. So I'm I'm gonna go with James Baldwin's Another Country. 
Right. And, and as you're on the verge of perhaps traveling to a, a new place yourself, uh, seems like, right. uh, that puts you in the right frame of mind. It also has love and, and community and, and lots of other things in there too. That's a great pick. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to cheat a little bit because it, it is one whole book, but it is a graphic novel. And that would be Bone, which was a graphic novel by Jeff Smith from the 80s, uh, told the story of these these three creatures who traveled this fanciful land in search of treasure and then come upon a great adventure that expands close to a thousand pages of some of the most gorgeous illustrated art you will ever see. It is almost like reading a Disney cartoon on the page in black and white. Uh, It's beautiful. It's brilliant. It's funny. uh, It's dramatic. It's thrilling. It's intense. And it's one of my favorite comics of all time. And if I'm going out, I'm going out in style and I'm going out with bones. (laughs) Now, is this, uh, how old were you when you started reading it? I, <laughs> you want me to say 15, but no, <laughs> I was probably, geez, probably in my 30s yeah. when I started, started reading this and I fell in love with it. And I collected it in single issues and then I collected it in trade. And then when he put out the big um, compilation, I grabbed that, bought one for my daughter. She has one. I bought some for different people. I've made it a gift to people. I, I absolutely love Bone. Yeah. Well, what I was wondering is if it's nostalgia for you as well, if it would put you in the, the frame of mind of being a, a younger person, or if you have, if you associate memories of your experience reading it and kind of uh, that way. But it sounds like you would you would choose it even if you had just started reading it last year just because you enjoy it so much. Exactly. I, I love this. I, I love, I, I just thought, well, I still collect comics. So th- there's mm. that as well. And I couldn't choose the complete Calvin and Hobbes because it's not a whole book. Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things, one of the things I like about it is uh, because it's a graphic novel, you know, I, I think it would be kind of nice rather than just to be marching along with the prose of a novel, knowing that you're going to get to the end, that you could kind mm-hmm. of pause and disappear into one of the drawings and kind of spend some time in the world of just a single panel or a single page and then mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, wander around in there before you return back to the story. And maybe uh, maybe it would be a way of of kind of celebrating this world and everything that we've seen in it and, and all of the the beauties and the physical pleasures, as well as just the cerebral. That's, that is very true. And it also means that I will be here to throw dirt on Vincent's grave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Len Webb and Vincent Williams, thank you for joining me on the history of literature. Thank, thank you. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Lynn and Vincent for joining me. Check out their podcast, The the Class of 1989 and The Misha Mission. And my thanks to T.R. Johnson. His book, New Orleans, A Writer's City, is available now in bookstores 
everywhere. And my thanks to you, dear listeners, for choosing to join me on this journey. I know you have alternative choices. I'm glad you carved out a little time for me. We've got a Persian prince coming up soon and an episode on the history of comics. An interesting subgenre of literature. We'll talk to an expert in comics, and then I think we'll just blow things open with some Henry James. Why not? We'll look at one of his greatest stories, but also one of the less well-known among the greatest stories. That's going to be just the thing for August, I think. Sultry August. Speaking of sultry, let's see if I can do this. <laughs> Speaking of sultry, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.